Well, amen. We're going to continue our study of Isaiah. And in doing so, I think you're going to find Isaiah is just so painfully practical to where we are as a world, as a nation today. And one of the reasons we've called this series Isaiah's Comforter is because it is filled with promises and icons and predictions to show us that God is still in control when the world feels out of control. But also it's designed to be a comfort, to comfort us during times of uncertainty and fear. Now, if you've noticed already for the last four weeks, we are not covering every chapter of Isaiah. So if you look at kind of the, 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 where we've been, we started chapter 1 with the flame that, that pur- purifies. And, and we talked about that flame that purifies. Then we moved on and we talked about the coal that cleanses. Remember how powerful that was that we can be cleansed by God's holiness? And so we covered chapters 5 and 6. Then... In that, we also looked at God as a, as a vineyard dresser who wants us to produce fruit. And then last week, Drew looked at the virgin that will be with child and the fact that God is Emmanuel. He is with us. When things are good, Emmanuel. When things are bad, Emmanuel. God is with us. He is the virgins with child. So today, we're jumping to chapter 9, and we'll look at what it meant that he was a child that was given. A son was born and a child was given. What does that look like? Why is that important? So if you want to read along with us, we're going to be going through key chapters each time, verse by verse. But We're going to finish this series up by Christmas. And we're specifically focusing on God's comfort that comes from this book that has a lot of judgment, but has a lot of promises. My hope is that almost like God calls his Holy Spirit the comforter, that these promises and these thoughts can be things that we wrap ourselves up in. Say, God, feels like the world's out of control. It felt like it was out of control for Israel back in the times of the Syrian Empire. And God says, just keep wrapping my promises around you. Yes, it's going to be a tough time. Seventy years of Babylonian exile. But I still have a plan. I'm going to bring you back to the land. Keep trusting all the things I said that were going to happen that are happening. So today specifically we're looking at that manger, the son that was given. And God's going to show us that for the nation as a whole and as individuals, that part of his, hump, his comfort and his hope is that they could consume the gloom that they were experiencing. Consume the gloom that was all around them by seeing the light that was given, the light then, and the light to come. God has been sending prophet after prophet after prophet warning and wooing them. And they didn't accept the light. They didn't hear the light. They didn't believe the light. But he also says there's a light to come, which points both to the light of Jesus, but also a future light, a light that's still in our future as well, a light that we look to. And we're going to see what exactly Isaiah saw and how that can help us by looking at three things that we can remember today. What is it about the light and this child that can bring us peace? So start with the first thing we're going to try and remember. And my hope is that as you're studying this with us today, you'll realize that you can, you can trust God's heart even when you can't really trace his plan. What are you doing? Why are you allowing this? Because that's certainly how Israel's going to feel during this chapter. So we start off with our first remembrance. Remember that God brings his light into my gloom. If you're experiencing gloom or uncertainty or fear, God says, I want you to know, my light shines best in your gloom. Here's how it begins. We'll actually go back to the end of the previous chapter. It says, then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, the gloom 
of anguish. And they will be driven into darkness, talking about Israel, Judah specifically in the south. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And really, what is gloom? Gloom is when you feel distressed and you feel oppressed by life, by circumstances, by relationships not going the way you want. You just feel distressed and oppressed. That's being in the, the gloom moments of life. But he says, in the middle of that gloom, when the gloom will not be upon her who's distressed, as when at first. So what he's saying here, we covered up a couple of verses here, let me go back. He's saying, at first, when you felt distressed and oppressed and there's no hope, then he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun. What's the land of Zebulun? And then the land of Naphtali. So after a time of persecution, after a time of difficulty, after a time of gloom, in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward, more heavily, oppressed her. So it gets worse, and then it gets worse, but God's going to bring light into this land called the land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun. It's getting more confusing, not clear, Chad. Well, I'll explain in just a second. So I want you to notice here that the gloom that he, he's talking about in the previous chapter 8 is actually when they were consulting medians, and mediums rather, and witches to get God's advice or advice for the future. So instead of consulting God and facing the consequences, they were instead consulting other people as God. And God's saying, listen, you pursued other things, you pursued other gods, I'm going to remove my hand of protection, and you're going to feel the sting of what it's like to consult medians and witches. But after that time of gloom and that time of consequences, there's going to be a light coming, my light, and it's going to come specifically to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Where's that? Well, it's helpful to understand all through Isaiah, it's why it was applicable to them, it's applicable to those leading up to Jesus, and it's applicable to us now, is that if you're a prophet, you don't fully understand what you're writing. You get pieces of it. The Holy Spirit's also working in the midst of it. So if you're the prophet Isaiah, you're seeing like three mountaintops at once. And you don't see the time gap in between. So you see the gloom. And for the gloom Isaiah is seeing is the gloom of Assyria is about to come in and conquer them. But also it looks to the future during a time they're also being oppressed by Rome during the time of Jesus. And he looks forward to another future, future gloom called the time of the Antichrist. And in all three instances, there's going to be a time of gloom. But in all three times, there's a light. There was the light of the prophets warning and wooing them during the time of Assyria, we're writing. But then during the gloom of Rome and the oppression of Israel during Roman occupation, Jesus will be the light. And during the future Antichrist time of gloom, Jesus will return and he will fix everything that's broken once and for all. So how do we know we can trust that? Well, let's look at his predictions. So the Assyrian Empire is coming down, and as it's been coming down, it's already taken the northern section of Israel. So Jerusalem down, that's where Judea is, but it's pretty much taken everything else. And so God's saying, listen, it's getting pretty gloomy around here, and Assyria's going to keep taking territory. However, if you look at a map of Israel, back when Joseph divided up the land, or Joshua rather, divided up the land amongst the tribes, all the different sections of Israel belong to different tribes. And if you look at two of the tribes, we'll zoom in on it, right here next to the Sea of Galilee is Naphtali and Zebulun. So these were just the names of some of Joseph's sons. 
but specifically it was the land right next to the Sea of Galilee. So he says, if you want to know where to find the light, if you want to know where God's light's going to come from, it's very, very specific. Of anywhere in the world, look just around the Sea of Galilee. That's where you'll find the light. Now, here's what's weird. While Isaiah is saying, you want to find the light, look to the north, up in the land of Naphtali. At the same time, Micah is prophesying, and he's saying, no, no, no. Well, he didn't say no, no, no. He said, look to the south to find the light. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And for years, people are like, oh, the Bible's contradicting itself. It can't be both. How can it be the light's coming from Bethlehem, but also from Naphtali? And God masterfully puts the puzzle pieces together and fulfills every single promise he predicted. A few more details. When you're thinking about your own gloom, it's like, well, you know, we're seeing the world and all of its uncertainty and all of its chaos. It's easy to not only let the, your personal gloom get absorbed from the, the greater gloom. It's like because the world's falling apart, it's not just kind of the international gloom. It's like I'm feeling uncertain and I'm feeling fearful. I'm feeling like how do I get out of this? I had a friend in high school. Her name is Colleen. Didn't know her real well. I was a on different drama teams, and she, I think, did makeup for the drama teams occasionally. So I knew her just in a cursory way. I hadn't talked to her in 20 years, probably. And about three years ago, I saw on Facebook, she posted this just devastating announcement that her son, teenager, had committed suicide. And just the heartbreak as a mom, didn't see it coming, I wish I had known, and just sharing openly about her grief and I hadn't, again, thought of her for 20 years, but she kind of came into my news feed. So I gave her a call. I said, Colleen, man, I'm so sorry to hear about your son. And I'm so sorry to hear what you're going through. And just anything I can do, just know I'm praying for you. And she said, well, believe it or not, since high school I've become a Christian. Said it's, 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 I'm trying to figure out how to rub the hope of the gospel into this tragedy that I'm in. I said, well, man, I... Don't have advice except to let you know I care about you and, and God knows what it's like to lose a son. Well, a couple years later, for whatever reason, I saw on her Facebook page and hadn't, again, interacted with her in two or three years, I saw that she was doing a fundraiser or something to help bring uh, awareness to suicide. And so I just sent her a quick note saying, hey, Colleen, just proud of you for, for you know, taking God's light and trying to help other people. And she says, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? Sure. So I gave her a call through the Facebook app, actually, and, and uh, I said, what's going on? She kind of said, oh, it's weird that you reached out to me. She said, uh, you sent me a message several years ago that you did on suicide, and it was really, really helpful for me. She said, I was looking for that because I today am about to meet with another mother who just lost their son, and I'm really nervous because my heart's broken for him, and I'm also trying to figure out how to bring comfort and truth to this gloom but I also had to bring the light. And I said, well, I've actually had a lot of suicides at our church, and I've actually spoken on suicide three times now in the last five years. So I gave her links to our website, and so she listened to those things and just talked about how it helped her not change the grief. The gloom was there. You don't change reality, but to bring God's comfort, to realize God is one that's acquainted with grief. He doesn't watch from a distance. And to feel God's comfort in the midst was very, very helpful for her. I think that's what God wants for us. He wants us to not only feel his light in our darkness, 
his light in our gloom. But then to say, how do I extend that to others? Man, you're going through cancer? I've been through cancer. Here's how God strengthened me. You're going through a time when, when your kids aren't speaking to you? I went through a time like that. Let me tell you how I trusted God through it. How do we find his light? And then how do we be a, a refractor to that light to the people around us? Remember, his light shines in my gloom. Well, he gives more details here in Isaiah. More details about how to find the light. And here comes this really interesting insight. Remember that the light makes shadows darker before they're consumed. You see all the lights we have in this room here. If you had a little bit of light, you would see a little shadow. If you increase the light, the shadow gets darker, right? Increase the light, the shadow gets darker when you're around the light. And it gets darker and darker and darker until it's gone. The light's consumed it. In the same way, as we look to God's return, we look to the the end of time when evil is judged and good is rewarded, the Bible says that things will get darker as the light gets closer. So when you see the darkness, it'll be easy to be overwhelmed by that, but don't be overwhelmed by the darkness. Keep remembering that means the light's coming. And the light's going to consume the darkness, which allows you to simultaneously see evil for what it is, but also hold on to the light. It's kind of the idea here. Here's what he says. Okay, so that light in, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, it's going to be specifically an area called the Galilee of the Gentiles. What's that? Well, Galilee just means the district. It's going to be a district of Gentiles who are living in the promised land. What are Gentiles doing in the promised land? Isaiah said, don't worry, it's going to happen. Now, part of that he already knew. Part of it was already happening, but it was going to be fully fulfilled later. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light in the land of Naphtali, in the Galilee of the Gentiles. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them, right there in the midst of their darkest moment, their darkest gloom, he sent a light. A light shined there in the dark place. The people who walked in darkness, made mistakes, rebelled against God, didn't do the right thing. When all those places happened, that is the moment that God appeared. And God showed up. And God stepped in. It's there that the light has shined. Hold on a second. My iPad just stopped. I'm going to have you guys take over for the next slide. So in the next slide, what we see, you guys take them back over, go and flip back over. So we're in this land of Naphtali. Why would this land of Naphtali, these are two Israel names, become a land controlled by Gentiles or inhabited by Gentiles? Well, to understand that, you need to know what happened by King Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 11, it says, Hiram, the king of Tyre, supplied Solomon with the cedar and cypress and gold to build the temple. And Solomon's like, thanks so much, king of Tyre, there's that little blip right there, that's Tyre, I'm going to give you 20 cities in the land of Galilee. So Solomon gave away a chunk of the promised land to Gentiles, which people are not happy about that from Solomon, including Isaiah's day, but even then, Isaiah says, God's going to use this as part of his plan to send the Messiah light to that very place. The place, the Galilee of the Gentiles. Now it's interesting because Isaiah will, will judge Israel for a while in his declarations. But in a later chapter of Isaiah, he will actually bring accusations or a burden against Tyre. 
Here's what he says. He says, the burden against Tyre, this is Isaiah 23, wail, you ships of Tarshish. It was a very powerful city right there on the Mediterranean coast. And they thought they were indestructible. And he says, no, no, no. The way you've treated Israel, you will be held account. Wail, you ships of Tarnish, uh, Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no harbor from the land of Cyprus. It is revealed to them. So it's this incredibly powerful coastal city. And what's interesting is it's a coastal city and just a 100, 200 yards away from it is an island. It's an island city with a fleet and it's a coastal city. And Assyria comes in just like Isaiah predicted and crushes them. But it doesn't seem like the ultimate fulfillment of this, of this prediction until Alexander the Great shows up. Alexander the Great shows up. Let me show you a picture of what he did. When he shows up, he devastates Tyre. He knocks over every house, every brick, and then he takes the bricks and he shoves them out into the ocean and he makes a land bridge. With the devastation of the city, he built a dam out to the island and now Tyre is no longer an island to this day. It's a peninsula and they've built the whole thing out. Fulfilled exactly as Isaiah predicted. God holds Israel to account, and God holds Tyre to an account. So, back to the Galilee of the Gentiles. So that's why it's got Gentiles in it. Come to Jesus' day, and sure enough, people are living in that time period. So look at how often this is mentioned in the Gospels. In the Galilee of the Gentiles, that's what it says in Isaiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a light. And we see in the both Luke and Matthew, it says, eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child. His name was Jesus. Simeon holds that child and says, a light that's going to bring revelation to the Gentiles. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Matthew tells us, of Judea. Okay, oh, that's what Micah said. And then being warned in a dream by God, they went to Egypt, and then they returned to the region of Galilee. Just like Isaiah predicted. So let's look at that on a map. So you have Bethlehem. That's where he's born. He's told to escape to Egypt, which another prophet gave us a clue. In Hosea it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I will call my son. And just like God called Israel out of literal bondage, he calls Jesus his son out of Egypt to come back to live in Galilee. And now all three clues specifically predicted come true in Jesus. Born in Bethlehem, escaped to Egypt, called out of Egypt, lives in Galilee, and then lives in a place called Nazareth, which we'll find out when we get to the branch on our comforter. God knows what he's doing. And during times when the shadows get dark, know that God's light is getting close. So he says there's such good news here that when the light comes, it's going to be filled with so much joy. Let me show you what the next passage says. It uses all kinds of metaphors for light and joy. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death. Difficult time. Land given away time. Disappointment regret time. It's right there in that shadow of death the light has shined. You, God, have multiplied the nations and increases joy. They rejoice before you like those who've got the joy of the harvest. <coughs> we planted all year. Man, the food's finally here. Wow, thank you, God. The waiting through the time of gloom, but now the joy overwhelms the work. 
It's kind of like men, he says, that rejoice after they've divided the spoils of war or the spoils of the harvest. And then he says something we're still longing for. He says, and that joy is not going to be the final joy. He says, verse 4, For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. So it's just a little opaque, but here it gets clear right here. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning fuel for fire. Which is his way of saying, there's going to come a time when you can take away all the boots, all the sandals from all the soldiers, and you can burn them all because there's never going to be war ever, ever again. Now that didn't happen with the Babylonian exile and their return. It did not occur when Jesus was there. There's still plenty wars and plenty battles in Rome, and certainly there's wars today. So here's where you see Isaiah looking well, well, well into the future. He is seeing there's a time that war will be finally done away with. The warrior's sandal will be burned as fuel, but it is still in the future to come. In the same way we know God fulfilled his promise in Jesus and his his promise of the Babylonian return, we can also trust that if you long for peace and no war, God is going to bring it, just not yet. So what do you do in the meantime? What do you do while you're in the time of darkness and the time of gloom? We've got to remember, when the light's getting closer, the shadows get darker, right up until they're consumed. So I was talking to a friend of mine about a month ago, and she was sharing with me how she's going through a time of personal gloom. It's gone on for about three years, and it's a family crisis, and it's just hellish on earth. And she posted this on Facebook, and I, ca- I know her husband real well. I called her up and said, hey, are you okay sharing this? And she said, yeah. Here's somebody trying to hold on to the light in the midst of personal gloom. Two years ago, I was right in the middle of one of the most awful and terrible seasons of my life. I won't share details, but it involves a lot of people very, very close to me. For me, it was one of the most hellish, painful times of my life. My prayer through this season was, Lord, make me look more like you after this is over. Don't let my picture of you get twisted or distorted because of this. My unconscious, less buttoned up prayer was, WTF, why are you letting this happen? Walking through this stuff with God will teach you real stuff. He is faithful in every single season of life. He will not let your pain be wasted. There are parts of my character now that would never have been developed without going through this. God can make something good out of anything, good out of awful stuff. My heart has deep scars that God is healing every day. Hopefully that makes me a little bit more like Jesus. The situation is not resolved, but I have a deeper, more constant joy than I've ever had. A light that God's in control, even when your circumstances aren't what you want them to be. That God has a plan, a meta-narrative for the universe that I'm trusting even when I can't see it. That's the second thing we remember. The third thing we remember is really, what is this light? Well, this light isn't a what. It's not an equation. It's not a moral code. It's not a commandment. Remember, God's light is a who, like no other who. Look how he describes this who. 
For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government is going to be upon his shoulder. So look, why do you need to have a child given and a son born? Or opposite, a child born and a son given. Because he's both God and man. He's a literal mortal child that will be born, but he's more than that. He's a son of God that is given. And he's going to bring a kingdom onto earth. The whole kingdom of God will be upon his shoulder. And because of that, when you encounter him, you're going to see this unique combination of strength and courage and peace and empathy. He's wonderful. More than that, he's a wonderful counselor. If you're grieving, if you're going through a hard time, if you're dealing with scars from the past or the present, you say, I, I don't want to go to a counselor. I've been a counselor. It's not a lot of help. Jesus is a wonderful counselor who draws near. He says, I'm acquainted with grief. I've lost a, a, a cousin to horrible violence named John the Baptist. I know it's like to lose a friend, to be betrayed by my followers. I'm a high priest that can sympathize with you. But having said that, then we get these other side of his characteristics. He is mighty God. I thought he was a child. I thought he's both a child and he's God. Well, I thought he was born. He's got a starting point. Well, he is, but he's also everlasting. He's eternal. I thought he was a son. He's also a father. That's why we believe in the deity of Christ. He's the unique combination of all these attributes, and he ultimately is the prince of peace who brings peace to every human heart. So right in the middle of all this gloom and all this devastation, he reminds us that there's peace coming. And in that peace is an opportunity for God to speak. Now, why would God bring this peace? He brings the peace because of our pride and arrogance. He says that in the next verse. The reason he's going to let us go through Babylonian uh, and Assyrian bondage is to deal with the pride of the human heart. He says, the Lord sent a word against Jacob and it has fallen on Israel. All the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, that was the northern part that gets conquered first, who said in pride and arrogance, when God said, I gave you a little bit of pain, let a few things get knocked down, will you learn from it? And instead of learning from it, you said, huh, the bricks have fallen down, we'll just rebuild with hewn stones, thicker bricks, stronger bricks. The sycamores are cut down, ah, that's fine, we'll replace them with cedars. We're not going to learn the lesson of discipline, we're just going to get stronger and keep not seeking God. Therefore, the Lord is going to set up adversaries of resin against him because you're not yet turning to me. And now the next couple of verses are devastating. A lot of details, but the main thing you're going to see him say is, my hand is outstretched still, over and over again. God's saying, they haven't learned yet, turn up the heat. They haven't learned yet, turn up the heat. And, and the metaphor of fire that we saw in chapter 1, and we saw with the consuming fire in chapter 5, this fire metaphor runs through the first half of Isaiah. And God's saying, I'm turning up the heat I'm trying to burn out the pride and arrogance in your heart. Here's how he says it. The Syrians, here's the things I'm bringing to your life to try and burn out that pride. The Syrians before and the Philistines behind, they will devour Israel with an open mouth for his anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. The people do not turn to him who strike him, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off the head and cut off the tail from Israel. Palm branches and bulrush in one day. The elder, it's like the, the leaders, the, the, as I'm saying, our, our, our political leaders and honorable. He's the head I'm going to cut off. 
the, the leaders of Israel are not leading people right. They're not passing laws that are right, he'll say in a moment. And the prophets are telling you lies. Ah, oh, it's going to be good. No, we're not going to, Syria's not going to get in here. No, no, Babylon's not going to come in here. They're lying to you. And I'm going to cut off the tail. They're not telling you the truth. Then he goes on. Look at the next part of the verse. He says the same thing again. His hand is outstretched still. The leaders of the people cause them to err. Those who are led by them are destroyed. Therefore, the Lord's going to have no joy in the young men, the next generation, because you're leading them astray. Nor have mercy on the fatherless or widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and evildoer. And every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away. There it is again. His hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns and the kindle and the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke. You're like, okay, it's bad enough now. We got it, we got it, we got it. No, no, Israel's not learning. So next verse, he's got to turn up the heat again. So the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up and the people shall be a fuel for fire. No man shall spare his brother. He shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. It's going to get so bad and so impoverished you're going to turn to cannibalism. Manasseh, these are the different brothers or divisions of Israel. Manasseh is going to devour Ephraim and Ephraim is going to devour Manasseh. Together they're all going to turn against Judah. It's going to be a civil war. And all this anger is not turned away, for his hand is stretched out still. You're like, oh my gosh, is this chapter ever going to get over? We get into the next chapter, and it mentions it one more time. And I'll just summarize chapter 10, because he says this. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune which they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice. For all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is outstretched still. He says, I'm going to hold the leaders to account. They have passed laws that exploited the poor. As we saw in 2 Kings, they've been killing off children, child sacrifice, human sacrifice. And so as much as, you know, God's kingdom, I always say God's not a donkey and God's not an elephant, but he is a lion. And as Christians who can disagree politically, we shouldn't, we should still have to agree on the principles the Bible says, that there are principles of justice, how we care for the poor, how we care, care for the child. While in their culture, they were killing the children after they were born. And our culture is killing our children before they're born. And so how do we, as citizens of two kingdoms, citizens of God's kingdom and this kingdom, say, I want to bring God's kingdom principles in, in how I vote and how I incorporate because God holds nations accountable to their leadership and their laws. But you read all that and you're like, is this the loving God that we're supposed to be serving and worshiping? How could he do this? Let me tell you a story. In 2002, there was a gigantic fire in Arizona. And it was massive. It's called the uh, Rodeo Chadisky Fire. 468,000 acres are burned. The temperature of this fire is 2,000 degrees. It was so fast moving because of the 40 mile per hour winds that it will go from 2,000 acres being consumed to 50,000 in four hours. And if you had a hidden camera, here's what you would see all around the outskirts of what became that fire. You would have seen a man standing in the woods and he pulled out a flare gun, <laughs> shooting fire into the woods and starting a flame. If that wasn't bad enough, you would go to another section of the woods and you would see someone who put a snowplow on the front of his truck, chopped down a bunch of trees, 
pushed them into a pyre and started a bonfire on the south side of those woods. And if that wasn't bad enough, if you had a camera, you would see another guy who made a mini flamethrower that he used to flame up and burn the edges to start the fire on the west side. How do you feel about the flamethrower and the plow and the guy shooting the torch? You think, what is wrong with these people? What is wrong with this world? But the three groups I just described are the firefighters. The fire had gotten so big and so large, the only way to stop it is to do what firefighters called a controlled burn or strategic burn. And one of the ways firefighters were going to stop the, the fire that already consumed 300 homes, they had to fight fire with fire by starting another fire that could burn it out. So on one side of the flame, they shot with flare guns and they started another fire to burn toward it. In another section, the firefighters took trucks and they cut down trees to create a gap so the fire couldn't jump over to where the homes were. And they chopped it down and they pushed them into a giant pile and they started a, a fire to burn toward the fire. Another section has this mini flamethrower looking thing. It's got kerosene. It drip, drip, drips kerosene out and you start a slow strategic burn to burn away the, 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 the grass and the burnables so that by the time the fire hits it, it'll burn out. And what looked like three terrorists turned out to be three firefighters. In the same way, you're not going to understand why God allows all this devastation and all this pain until you realize he's fighting a bigger fire. And the bigger fire he's fighting is the fire of pride and arrogance. Because God knows that arrogance and pride will burn your marriage to the ground. It will burn your spiritual life to the ground. It will burn a country to the ground. And God is willing to burn strategic burns and fires around you if it will help consume the greater evil that's in us. And that's why God allowed Jesus to go on that cross. You see him experiencing hell on earth. Why would a loving father do that? Except that he's trying to deal with a greater fire, our sin, our pride, and just like the Israelites. Despite God's warning and wooing, we keep doing our own thing. So the hope and challenge for us is that we would take his comforter, in fact, just like Isaiah 40 says, comfort my people with the comfort of God. He then says, Jesus, when he leaves this planet, he says, I'm going to send my comforter to you. And I want you to know that my son, the son given, the child born, this son can consume the gloom. Whatever you're going through, whatever the world's going through, you look back at the light God fulfilled. Sure enough, after 70 years of Babylonian exile, God did exactly what he said and put him back in the land. Just like God said in a future time, he brought light, the light of Jesus, born in the exact right spot, in the exact predicted place that God said 500 years in advance. And so now we wrap ourselves up with his comfort, with his promises, many more to come in this book, to say, God, I'm going through a tough time. Our world's going through a tough time. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to view my circumstances I'm going to view the circumstances given to my life through the child given for my life. I don't understand why I'm going through this, why the fire is so hot, why it seems like it's being turned up. I don't like the circumstances given to my life right now. But God, I'm going to wrap myself up in the fire blanket of your promises. 
Now I'm going to remember that whatever's happening, you are a purifying fire. But it's not you don't love me. It's not you don't care about me. In light of the sun given for my life, I'm going to interpret the circumstances given to my life knowing a loving heavenly father is trying to develop my character. I had a chance this week to pray with three different people in our church going through a variety of challenges, some relational, some circumstantial. And in each circumstance as we prayed together, we did what we just talked about. Let's try and view this as hard as it is, as unpredictable as it is, as devastating as it is. Let's view this through God's not out to get you. God sent his son to die for you. Another couple I said, there's no safer place to be than in God's hands. And even though we don't like the storm around us, we're still safe in his hands. Hold on to the promise of who he is. Because the one person that makes it through the storm of hell is Jesus. So stay close to him. So whatever you're going through, whatever worries you have about this world, God's in control. And God has a plan. And if we view our circumstances through the lens of his love, we can find hope and joy and uncertainty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your incredible predictions and promises. We thank you, God, for the way in which they came true literally. And because of that, God, we just don't want to trust you. We know we can trust you. There's evidence we can trust you. And so, Father, in our own times of uncertainty, we trust that you know best for our life and for our world. In Jesus' name, amen.